If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 9. By the way, if you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, we have one left and it's on the welcome table. It's gone unclaimed for months. And so if you want it, go ahead and grab it. And uh, that'll be our gift to you. All right. Tonight, Today we're going to be in Luke 9 starting 43b. So the second half of that verse, which your text should naturally already kind of divide up into this other section, 2 verse 50. Okay. It's so 43b, second half of verse 43 to verse 50. If you got it, say, I got it. All right. Also, if you behind me on the screen, in my translation, read follow along there as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. Luke in chapter 9, starting 43b, the Holy Spirit says, But while they were, were all marveling at everything he, Jesus, was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is one who is great. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We try to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. When you hear the word greatness, I wonder what you think of. If pressed, what would you say in response to the question, how does someone become great? Most people likely have the same basic thoughts or responses, you would think. Yes, when, when you think of greatness, we think primarily of skill, achievement, of being in a certain better in a certain field than the other people who are in that same field. Greatness for us is about not only ability, but drive and accomplishments, if I were to ask you, who was great between these two, okay? Person A summited Mount Everest, something few have done in history. Or person B, who was climbing Mount Everest but turned around and never reached the summit, who would you say was great? You'd say person A. And why? They set out Summit Everest, they accomplished their goal which is something person B did not do. But now let me, let me tell you a little bit more about these two people, okay? Both of these people I'm thinking of climbed Mount Everest in May of 2006. Now, you know that even to climb Mount Everest, you need about 25,000 American dollars. You need to be in top shape. You need to do a lot of preparation for years and years and years. You need to endure travel and logistics and all of that, okay? Both these guys did all of that. Well, both of these men, separated by about 10 days, were climbing up the peak, were well on their way to the summit, when they each saw a different man dying. Each saw someone who was in desperate need of help, was lacking oxygen, and was in danger of frostbite 
and hypothermia. So they each had a choice to make. Now, they both knew that the odds of that man, those men, surviving were very, very minimal. They also knew that those who even undertake to climb are in some sense acknowledging that death is a possibility. They both knew that if they stopped to help, that would mean an end to what they've worked so hard to do. All that money, all that preparation, all that time would be for not. And the man might not even survive anyway. You know what they did? Person A did all these calculations in his head, and he passed the dying man. And he summited Everest. He made it all the way to the top of the world's tallest mountain for the rest of his life. He could tell people that he summited the world's tallest mountain. The man he passed died on that May 15th day. His body is still up there, in fact. Is person A great? Person B, he was climbing up Everest about 11 days later. He was well on his way to the summit. In fact, the conditions could not have been more perfect. He was well rested. He felt strong and prepared. He could see the end of his goal right in front of him. All he had to do was keep going. All that work and money and time was about to pay off. While as he was climbing, he spotted a man who had severe frostbite, was hallucinating, and was dying. In fact, that man was part of a climbing party that left him once he fell ill because they thought he was dead. Person B had a choice to make, but unlike person A, he decided to try to save this man's life instead of leaving him to die. And indeed, the man lived. But person B never summited Everest. He turned back. He went down the mountain with this dying man, and he would never summit Everest again. Is person B great? You know, we probably consider those, those two stories, we're mortified. We side with person B, whose name, real life name is Miles Osborne. But let's be honest, many people would side with person A, whose name is Mark Ingalls. Why? Because we've been confronted, conditioned as a people to think that greatness should be procured at all costs. The idea of being able to say, I summoned Everest. Everything I worked so hard for paid off is incredibly tantalizing. When you're culturally conditioned as we are, that greatness is found in what you do, in what you accomplish, what you achieve, who you impress, then certainly we know and accept that there will be casualties along the way. Maybe not always actual deaths, but if a few people need to be stepped on here and there, that, it's worth it to achieve greatness, isn't it? After all, those people should have been stronger and better, or they wouldn't be so easy to pass on our journey to greatness. Greatness in our world is about who you know, what you can accomplish, and who can see you and applaud. But now, if Jesus brings a different kingdom than anything the world has or will ever see, how does greatness look there? I think the comparison of these two fellows who climbed the Everest in May 2006 is an apt parable of greatness in the world and in the kingdom. The world applauds upward mobility, yes, and accomplishments that make others jealous while they watch us reach the summit, as it were. The kingdom? What well, favors the kind of greatness that forsakes worldly acclaim for the good of 
people who lay dying and passed over. This is what we're going to see in our text this morning. In our text, you'll have noticed we have three scenes. They seem relatively unrelated, but all of them have something to teach us about what greatness is not and what greatness is in the kingdom of Christ. So we'll take each scene in turn, okay, and see in each what greatness is not and what greatness is according to Jesus. So let's look at scene number one. You notice this first scene appears in verses 43 through 45, and it follows on the heels of both the transfiguration and Jesus healing a boy who was possessed by a demon. Remember what happened then? Jesus took Peter and the sons of Zebedee up to the mountain and was thus transfigured before them. He gave them a peak, right? The curtain was pulled back into the kingdom, which is to come. As Jesus and crew are descending down the mountain, they were once again met with the crowds, as is the habit of Jesus' life, right? One person in the crowd rushes to the front, says, I have a son. He has been brutalized by this demon. I tried to ask your disciples to help. They could not cast the demon out. So Jesus then rebukes the crowd for its faithlessness and casts out the demon with a word. Then we're told in verse 43 that all were astonished. Do you see it? All were astonished by the majesty of God. And then this peculiar thing happens. While the crowds, look what it says, were marveling at everything Jesus was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. You see the play on words here? Son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of the sons of men, is what Jesus tells them. So whereas Jesus' first passion prediction in verse 22 of this very same chapter, his suffering is attributed to Jewish enmity, now it's attributed to all of humanity. First to the religious leaders, now to the crowds. But isn't the placement of this announcement strange? James Edwards says in his commentary, the paradox between the crowds basking in the sunlight of Jesus' majesty, and Jesus' stormy announcement of his impending suffering is abrasive. Crowds are marveling, yes, not at just what Jesus did in casting out the demon. We're meant to see this is a sort of catch-all summary about the crowds that we have encountered thus far in Luke's gospel. The crowds are amazed at everything Jesus has done that they have witnessed and heard about. And it's in this summary that suddenly Jesus interjects and tells the disciples, let this sink into your ears. Or you must put these words in your ears. And he tells them that he will be betrayed and handed over and die because of men. Why say this? Like like the disciples must have been on a sort of high, right? From the transfiguration and then Jesus casting out the demons. The crowds are marveling at them and their deeds, and they're pumped up. And then Jesus suddenly says, oh, by the way, you know how I said I must suffer and die? Well, it's going to be at the hands of men. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's the key. The crowds are amazed now. They love me now. They bask in my deeds now. But they'll betray me later. He's popular now, but eventually they're going to turn on him. The current popular adulation of Jesus is not going to last, as we say. It's here we see what greatness is not and what greatness is in the first scene. Greatness is not found in popularity with crowds. Greatness is found in sacrifice. I'll say that again. Greatness is not found in popularity with crowds. Greatness is found in sacrifice. Jesus is showing us how fickle crowds can be and how popularity is a poor measure of greatness. You know, there's a classic example of this that comes later in Jesus' life 
Remember when he was riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? The crowds are freaking out. You remember this? Freaking out. They're pumped. They're, they're throwing their clothes on the road before him. They're shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Save us now. And they're ready for Jesus to be king post haste. But then a few days later, Jesus is delivered into the hands of men, just as he said he would here. And he stands trial before Pilate with another man, Barabbas. Barabbas was a violent criminal accused of treason and sedition. But when the crowds are given the choice between him and Jesus, they want Barabbas released and they shout of Jesus, crucify him. Now, we don't know if the same people shouting Hosanna a few days later are a few days earlier in the crowd at Jesus' trial. But the point stands, crowds are fickle. They will adore you as long as they think you can benefit them. But when it turns out you aren't what they want or expect, they will turn on you. The people shouted Hosanna, not because they understood who Jesus was. The crowds in Luke 9 aren't in awe of Jesus because they understand who Jesus is. They want a king who will set up a kingdom now. They want a king who will benefit them now. They want a king who will overthrow their enemies now. What they don't want is a king who will willingly be executed as an enemy of the state. To them, that would be unfathomable. To them, that would be losing. To them, that would be failure. They don't want a king who suffers and dies. They want a strong man who does exactly what they expect out of a Messiah. So Jesus tells his disciples here, my greatness is not found in what these crowds think. My greatness is found in a cross. This is different than what the disciples thought. It's different than what we think too. As I said in the introduction, we're conditioned to think greatness is found in adulation and praise from people, not in giving ourselves up for others. <laughs> there's, there's a sickening pull. You know this. There's a sickening pull inherent in all of our fallen hearts to receive praise and find our worth in how well-liked we are or how popular we are. What do people think of me? This is a key to what motivates a lot of our lives, whether we would want to admit it or not, whether we realize it or not. And this is why taking up a cross is so counterintuitive to us, as it was when the disciples first heard it. It's why Jesus feeds the great crowds miraculously, but then says that the bread of life is his sacrificed flesh, and they walk away and no longer follow. It's why the rich young ruler is told that he lacks all he lacks is sacrifice and following Jesus, and he went away sad. It's why great crowds of people gravitate to Jesus to be healed and to be exercised, but when Jesus is crucified, he's alone. It's why Paul calls the cross the foolishness of God and a stumbling block. It's why when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't mind the prospect of Jesus ruling over the kingdoms of earth as long as he bypassed a cross. It's why in our own time, the most popular so-called gospels are the ones that are crossless. It's why so many of the most popular speakers and books feature Jesus as a cheerleader rather than the crucified Lord. It's why messages of health and wealth are more popular than messages of Christ and Him crucified. It's why singing God Bless America at sporting events is inoffensive and innocuous. 
We don't mind vague notions of a blessing deity. As long as he doesn't call for our death to self. I mean, you think about, what if at a ball game they instead were led to sing, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, there would be an uproar. A bloodless Savior that lacks a cross will always be more popular with the crowds than a bloody Savior who calls his followers to take up a cross too. The most popular things are poor guides because the most popular things will always and forever be the ones that don't feature a cross or denial or death. Greatness, we're told, is found in how big of a crowd you can draw and how well people think of you. And if that's the case, then a cross and sacrifice and humility must be cut out because they won't draw a crowd. In fact, they might repel them, but Jesus enters here and asks, what do the crowds know anyway? They don't understand that the Son of Man must die and they will be the ones who kill him. If it were up to them, they'd have glory that bypasses an atoning cross. If it were up to them, they'd have a vivacious life that doesn't call them to die at all. What Jesus is telling the disciples and us here is, don't think that greatness is found in what fickle crowds of fallen people think. Greatness looks like Jesus. And Jesus is someone who did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. You want to be great? Emulate him. The disciples, they're distressed at these words because... It's hidden from them, right? But also because they simply, they don't have a category for Messiah who would willingly suffer and die of one who would win by losing. As Daryl Bach said, the disciples were perplexed because they wonder, how could this be God's plan? How could Jesus be God's agent and be destined for death at the same time? <clears throat> but the irony is even thicker than that because Jesus' death at the hands of men is for the benefit of the very same people whose sins put him on the cross. Jesus did not buy into the popularity of the crowds, not only because he knew the future, not only because he knew people's fickle hearts, but because he wasn't living for people's praise. Jesus' glory came in what the Father thought of him, not in what people thought of him. As long as Jesus was doing the will of the Father... He was doing just fine. And that is that not how we ought to live too? The reason we're so intoxicated with what people think of us isn't, simple, isn't simply because that's just how the world works. It's because we are trying to justify ourselves. And what better way to feel justified than in acceptance and applause? What better way to be justified than with the words and affirmation of the world? What better way to lay down at night feeling like we've achieved greatness than replaying in our mind all the ways people were impressed by us that day? It's why most people have given the choice would rather serve in the spotlight than in anonymity. It's why we would rather be seen by men than do something that only God might see. It's why we think that doing something that will not be seen and lauded is hardly worth doing. But the way of the cross is better 
because the way of the cross sees glory in sacrifice and not ease. The way of the cross is better because it finds justification in the work of another. And thus doesn't need to be justified by one's own deeds or reputation. The way of the cross is better because it finds justification in Christ's life and death and resurrection, not who we can be. The way of the cross is better because it lives for the will of the Father, not the capricious and ever-shifting thoughts of fallen people. The way of the cross is better because it basks in the acceptance and the sight of God that has been given to us by grace and thus knows that nothing we would do will go unseen by the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. The way of the cross is better because it finds true greatness in a cross and not in a crowd because only one of those will last. Then in scene two, scene two, we see the topic of greatness made just explicit, right? And the disciples are actively arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And this won't be the last time they do this, by the way. But note the irony. You see the irony? While Jesus is talking about his sacrificial death at the hands of men, what are they arguing about? Their importance. That's some next-level tone deafness, isn't it? The disciples assume one of them is greater than the others, and they want to know which one it is. Obviously, each disciple thinks that it's them, right? Perhaps Peter thinks, well, I was one who confessed Jesus is the Christ. I should be first. Maybe the sons of Zebedee think, well, we got to go with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. These other jabronis did not, right? We should be on Jesus' right and left, which they have their mom ask for later, by the way. Maybe even Judas thought, I'm the one trusted with keeping the money bag. I should be the first in the kingdom, right? Or the secretary of the treasury or something. Jesus knows they're having this debate, and he gives this object lesson, right? What does he grab? He takes a child who's nearby. He picks up the child and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What does this mean? To catch the meaning of this saying, we need to understand some of this context. See, in our time, kids are elevated, yes, in some sense. Not by everybody, but for the most part, kids are made much of. Y'all make much of your kids and grandkids? Uh, I'm friends with you on Facebook. I know what's popping. We value children, right? And we should. Right? We talk about our kids. We marvel at when they do the simplest thing, right? (laughs) We put pictures of our kids everywhere. We brag about them. We, we post about every single thing they do on social media so that others can marvel at them too, right? We set our lives around them and more. We love our kids and we should. And we want people to think they're great as we do. Now, get that in your mind. First century Palestine viewed kids exactly in the opposite way. Children in this context were not seen as valuable until they were old enough to contribute to society. The virtues of children were not extolled Children were at the bottom of the societal ladder and viewed as relatively insignificant. Coincidentally, the other day I heard a popular radio host say he saw a sign in an elementary school, and the sign said, the world is better because you are in it. And he proceeded to mock that message. He said it was, quote, stupid. Then he said, plus, it's not true. What has any fifth grader done to have made the world better because he or she is in it, he said. 
That's the kind of vile thing that first century people would have thought. They would have, like that radio host, seen children as of only of value when they could contribute something to society. They would have thought that children were those who had no rights and were, quite frankly, a nuisance. But that's not what Jesus thinks. Jesus doesn't place value on people based on how society sees them. He doesn't value, place value on people based on how they benefit the economy. He does not see people only as valuable when they make some contribution. He sees all people as valuable. And in fact, calls for his people, specifically target, and welcome those who society treats cheaply. Jesus' message here in lifting up this child. We, we read this and we're like, yeah, that makes sense because of our context. Not in this one. <laughs> he lifts up this child. They're, they're thinking the same thing that goofy radio host thought. What, what, what does that child contribute? What should I welcome him? He just lifts up this child and says, welcome him or her is that his followers are to see greatness in a profoundly different way than the world does. He says, greatness is not found in stature. He says, receive people who could do nothing for you. He says, recognize that the least in society are valuable because God says they're valuable. No, it doesn't matter what society thinks of them. So greatness is not found in being first. Greatness is not found in one's status in society. Greatness is found in being least and last. Greatness is found in welcoming those at the bottom. That's what Jesus says. Let me say it again. Greatness is not found in being first. Greatness is not found in one's status in society. Greatness is found in being least and last. Greatness is found in welcoming those at the bottom of society. Jesus is calling on his disciples to change the way they see people. He's calling for his followers to be kind and generous and welcoming to those that society ignores. He's calling for those who bear his name to not care about the status of people, but to receive and welcome and identify with the lowly. He's calling for his people to welcome those society does not esteem. Says Tom Schreiner in his commentary, those truly great welcome nobodies in this world. They receive those ignored by society trying to climb the ladder of influence. See, Jesus is discouraging his followers from not only trying to be great in the eyes of the world, he's discouraging them from even seeing greatness the way the world does. Jesus knows that our human propensity is to not only try to procure first place for ourselves, but to welcome those we think are great by society standards because they could benefit us. And if that's the case, we will never welcome people whose society views as last, will we? If greatness is defined society, societally as the strong and the competent and the well-to-do and the popular and the respected and the accomplished and the attractive and the wealthy and the people who live in the right neighborhoods and drive the right cars with the right jobs and we want to be great too, that's exactly who we will glad hand and welcome in. Therefore, we will ignore those who are weak and poor and unpopular and not respected and not accomplished, who live in the wrong neighborhoods and drive the wrong cars and have the wrong jobs because, well, what can they do for us anyway? Friends, that is a Christless, Darwinian, hellish way to view the world and people. You know, James... Jesus' half-brother. He's one who took this lesson to heart. 
You remember in his epistle? Writing to the churches. He said, you, you know, you'll be tempted to receive people of status and degrade those who have none. He said, if two people come into your church, this is what he pictured. One of them is what he called the gold-fingered man, i.e. someone wealthy, right? Lots of gold, lots of bling. And he's wealthy, he has status, he dresses in fine clothes, and then another person comes in and they're filthy, they're poorly clothed, and you say to the wealthy person, come here, come to the front, sit at the best seat of the house. And then you say to the poor person, why don't you go sit in the floor? Why don't you go off in the corner? Don't bother anybody. Then you have done evil. He says, in your partiality, in your favoritism, you have sinned. He asks, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? What Jesus is saying and what James says after him is that if you only identify with people at the top, you're buying into the way of the world, not the way of the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom is being least, not best. Last, not first. Unlike the world, status is not a virtue in the kingdom of Christ. If greatness is found in betrayal and denial and a bloody cross, and this is how Christ achieved victory, how on earth can we think that greatness can be found in the ethics of a world set against Christ? Does not the cross flip everything on its head? The world that prizes status and ignores the weak is the world that rejected Christ because they saw his dying as losing. Let's illustrate it like this. Let's say our church was going to have guest speakers over the course of the next two Sundays, Sunday nights, okay, which we know that giving a hot mic to people is very dangerous. But let's say we're having next two, week, next two Sunday evenings, guest speakers, okay? The first one, we had a Christian celebrity. Okay, let's say someone like T Tim Tebow, right? You guys like Tim Tebow, right? Bad at football, nice guy, okay? Or, you know, celebrity, nice celebrity, Tim Tebow, Christian celebrity, something like that. We advertise the mess out of it. Put posters all over town, advertise it on Facebook and all that noise. Then say the next week, we're going to have a local plumber or janitor, former addict, nobody's ever heard of. And he's going to share his testimony. Which one? would have the bigger crowd, which would be better attended, which would create the most buzz. Who do you think people are going up to after for a picture and an autograph? You know, no offense to Timothy Tebow, I'm sure he's a nice fella, but he is not more valuable or more important or more worth listening to than a plumber or a janitor or anyone else that society overlooks and doesn't exalt. But we know which event, don't we? We know which event would be more well attended, and we know why. Jesus is calling for us to rethink the way we see the world, what we value. Those with power and status do not lend more credibility to the kingdom of God and do not have a higher place inherent to them before the throne of Christ. Nor do people with no status in the world have automatic entrance into the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying either. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And no matter how awesome the world thinks you are, you are no less a sinner deserving of the full condemnation of a holy God unless you repent and embrace a bloody cross. 
No matter how overlooked you are, you are no less a sinner deserving the full condemnation of a holy God unless you repent and embrace a bloody cross. The way of the kingdom is to realize this. It's to overturn the ethics of the world, embrace the ethics of the kingdom. It's to welcome those who society does not exalt. It's to receive those who can do nothing for you. It's to embrace those who the world does not value or sees as a nuisance. It's to cease completely seeing people according to their status out there. See, Jesus is not, Jesus is not something calling us to be little children here with humility or innocence and whatnot. He's calling us to be like him. What does he do? He went to and welcomes and embraces children and others like them, people like you. People who have no status of their own before a holy and just God. People who are desperately needy like you are. People who feel alone and forgotten like you do sometimes. People who, no matter what they've done or what they think they've earned, come to him and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. People who, if it weren't for a move of God, would be lost in their sins forever and ever. People who, if they had a thousand lifetimes to try, would still fail to please God with their deeds. People who, if others knew who they really were, what they really thought, what really lurks in the dark places of their hearts, would run and hide. People who put on airs of strength and confidence but are really afraid and weak. That's who you are. And that's who Jesus looks at and says, come and eat the bread of life. Come and drink from the streams of grace. These, those are people he welcomes and says, do likewise. And you will be welcomed by me. And if you're welcomed by me, you will be welcomed by the Father. Don't you see that Jesus models greatness for us because he condescended? He intentionally took on flesh, God of God, true light of true light, creator, took on flesh and was handed over to men and betrayed and suffered and died for those same people who crucified him. He became last and he is thus first. Would you see greatness the way he does? Would you strive to be last like he does? Would you serve rather than be served like he does? Would you welcome the weak, the marginalized, the overlooked, the oppressed, the hated, the despised, the poor, those who could contribute absolutely nothing to you like he does? This is the way of greatness. But we must move on to our third and final scene. Our shortest one for verses 49 and 50. Now here we have a bit of irony. The disciples report to Jesus that they saw some fella casting out a demon in the name of Jesus. And they're like, aren't you proud of us, Jesus? We stopped him. And he's not one of the 12. You know why this is ironic? You look up at verse 40 in this very chapter. We're told the father of the demon-possessed boy went to Jesus because the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. So they failed to cast the demon out, but they're stopping someone who was successful not casting out a demon. The disciples think greatness is found in being in their exclusive group. And that only those who are part of their crew 
should be able to do what that man did. Jesus is against that party spirit. And he's against disciples wanting to be the ones seen and recognized for their deeds. This does not mean that Jesus is against wise discernment, you understand. <laughs> he's against a sort of division that sees oneself as superior to others. He's not opening the door to welcome heretics as long as they say they're coming in Jesus' name. He's warning against a pride in oneself and a divisive spirit and of jealousy and competition. The lessons we've explored so far all apply. The disciples have a sense of pride because they're in this group of 12 following Jesus. And in some sense, <laughs> yeah, they should feel honored. Out of everybody in human history, there's only been 12. Well, 13 because of Judas, but this group makes them feel a certain sense of pridefulness. One that makes them look down on others. One that sees someone perform a task and thinks, why did they get to do that? And not me. And if we have that kind of view of the world, then we cross the line into spiritual pride too. See, we may look at these two short verses, this little exchange, and think, I, I wouldn't think or do such things. Not so fast. We're all prone to the same spirit that we see in the disciples here. Are we not? Are we not just as prone to divide into little groups and think our little group is superior to your little group? Are we not just as prone to jealousy that sees someone get something we want and that little jealousy pops up in your heart? Has that happened to you? Yes, it has. Are we not prone to think our preferences and opinions are superior to everybody else's? Examples abound, do they not? Think of the worship wars. We were just talking about this in Sunday school. Remember that silliness? What was that? Wars? What were we saying? We were saying, me and my group's way of worship is superior to the way the other group worships, so let's divide. What? We have any scripture, right, to back that up, by the way. Just our feelings. Mine is more reverent, one said, while mine is more attractive to the unchurched, the other said. Think of service. When someone gets a spot that you feel like you deserve, do we rejoice with them or do we say to ourselves and our friends, I should be doing that? Do we automatically gravitate to services that will get us seen and recognized for our great talent or are we okay serving in obscurity where only God could see? Would we rather people recognize us for our giftedness or serve in the back changing diapers and telling kids to calm down for the 30th time in the last 10 minutes, where no one may ever see, and no one may ever appreciate me. Ask yourself if you'd rather be cleaning a toilet or on the platform. Ask yourself if you'd rather be applauded by men or serve unseen except for by heaven. Ask yourself if you'd rather be in a room making decisions or in a kitchen cleaning a dish. So I think of an example Garrett Keel gave in an article from the Gospel Coalition, he titled, Stop Photobombing Jesus. In that article, he tells a story when he was, he was asked to come to a college ministry event because the leader had an important job for him. He said, come to this event, I got an important job for you. So he shows up thinking, like, I'm going to get center stage. Right? Like, I, I get to share my testimony, or he's going to want me to preach. And it turned out they just needed him to man the rope that opened and closed the curtain on the stage. That was his important job. Okay? This is what he said. He said, with each tug of the rope, my frustration increased. My hands burned and my heart criticized the speaker. If I were out there, God would use me powerfully. 
So I've never heard the audible voice of God, but that night I had this distinct impression. If you can't be just as joyful back here where no one can see you as you would be out there where everyone can see you, then you are seeking your glory, not mine. It continued, and then it hit me. I served God with mixed motives. I hoped lost people would be saved, but I wanted to be the evangelist used. I desired Christians to be encouraged, but I wanted to be the instrument of edification. I wanted people to think God was awesome and that I was too. This is where it gets tricky. The desire for God to be glorified through me is the height of my created purpose. But there's a fine line between wanting God to use me for his glory and wanting everyone to know it. It's the fine line between pure worship and idolatry. Are we not prone to the same sorts of things? The disciples are grumps because they're still thinking of greatness in purely human ways. Maybe they've even, they're even acting out because the man was able to do something they failed to do. Maybe they're bas- they are basking in being part of this exclusive club and thought the only they should be doing these big things for God. Maybe they just liked their group and didn't like people outside of it. In any case, they're missing out on Jesus' idea of greatness. They're missing how the kingdom flipped on its head all definitions of greatness in the world. I wonder, how do you see greatness? You know, there are two ways to view greatness, aren't there? Just two. There's the way of the world, and there's the way of Christ. The world says, achieve, fight, win, climb, be recognized. The world tells us that the ones that are great are those who win the most and accomplish the most. We debate greatness in every conceivable area of life. Who is the greatest at this sport or that? And to get that answer, we ask, well, who has accomplished more? Who has won more? Who has more accolades next to their name? You know, last week, just last week, six million people tuned into the Emmy Awards, which is just, you know what it is? It's just a bunch of rich people giving each other trophies. And then giving speeches about how great they are. You log into social media, we want to know who has the most followers and likes and shares, who's influential. Then we'll really know who's great. In our lives, we're encouraged to climb and climb and climb and compare and compare and compare and outdo and outdo and outdo. The world says struggle, compete, and win. And that makes us look at people and want to use them. Because we want to know, are you my competitor? Or are you someone who could help me? And then we'll decide if they're valuable. If you're my competitor, I must conquer you. If you're someone that can help me, I could use you. And if you can't help me, I don't need you. All of that makes sense to us. And it's in that space that Jesus says, if you want to be great in the only kingdom that actually matters, the only kingdom that will last forever, then be Strive to be last. I mean, if we all thought of this ethic, we'd be falling over each other to have the last place. He says, don't aim for the top, shoot for the bottom. Don't try to be known and seen, be obscure. Don't compete with others, be a loser. Don't try to surround yourself with people just like you and those who can advance your career or life or church or portfolio or reputation. Welcome instead those whose society has no use for and those who have no status, and those who could do nothing for you. Don't try to live, die. 
Don't live your own way. Live my way. Don't be a hedonist trying to exhaust the world's pleasure. Deny yourself. Then you can be great. Then you will be received by me. Then you will be received by my Father. All of that sounds so strange to our ears, doesn't it? And that's why we should embrace it. Jesus' ethic is strange because it's better. And Jesus' way of greatness is better because the path that he trod before us. Philippians 2 tells us that he is equal with God because he is God. And yet, he didn't use his equality with God for his own benefit, but purposefully humbled himself, emptied himself, took on flesh, condescended to human form, lived among people, was rejected, betrayed by friends and by the crowds, was flogged until his bones showed. Carried his cross to the place of the skull. Was nailed to a tree between insurrectionists and terrorists. And he hung there alone in shameful nakedness. And he felt the abandonment of God as he bled and died alone. All of that was his choice. All of that was divine imperative. All of that was purposeful. All of that was for you. Because he loves you. You know who you are. You are someone who, apart from a move of God, is someone with no status or wealth or anything to commend yourself to him in the kingdom. In fact, apart from a move of God, you're firmly outside the kingdom and lost forever, and he welcomed you in any way. He received you who have no status, nothing to offer to God that he lacks or that would impress him, and yet he took you in. And he says, Look at me and see what I did and who I am. This is what greatness looks like. You go do likewise. Jesus, who was and is the highest, came and became the lowest to get to you. You see that. Then see if you could see greatness the same again. See that and let it wreck your categories. Ruin your heart afresh and fundamentally change how you see and define greatness.